having more money does give you more opportunity, but that doesn't guarantee happiness. Yeah. And that's the way I'd say it. The, the people that say money doesn't buy happiness, I'd say that's probably not not the right statement. It's it's money, if you manage it right, can give you incredible happiness if you manage it right. Yeah. It can, it can reduce stress, but it can, it's not a guarantee is the way I'd put it. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Jim Harter. Jim's been at Gallup a long time. He's the chief scientist of workplace management and well-being at Gallup. And he's got a new book coming out on the 30th of this month, May 2023, called Culture Shock. And what he did last year is they've done a load of research at Gallup. They did a daily survey all the way through COVID. They do a well-being survey across 120 countries globally. They do 15,000 people take part in their quarterly survey. They've got some fantastic data. And I wanted to get him on to find out what the data said about working from home versus being fully remote versus being in the office versus hybrid, because there'll be some data. And then instead of my bias or your bias, you can see how our biases stack up against the data. And so we get stuck into that. We find out from him, depending on the work type, how many days in the office drives engagement. You might say engagement, that sounds a bit soft, but they've, Gallup have just announced the 57 companies in North America who get a Gallup Q12 engagement score of higher than 70%, which is, they're the 57 companies that get over 70. So there's not a limit on who can get this award, but that's the score you have to get, which is extraordinarily rare and hard to get. And they also publish data on the financial performance of those companies where those companies are public and those companies outperform their peers all day long. So driving engagement, I think this is, you can be engaged, not actively engaged or actively disengaged. And I think you're are actively engaged. This is our A players. These are the people who make a difference. This is where we're getting the 40% discretionary effort above quietly quitting. This is where managers make the difference and great managers bring out 40% discretionary effort in their employees, in their teams. And that translates to performance, financial performance, and higher levels of staff retention and higher levels of customer retention. So that's what we're talking about. How do we make a business more productive and outperform our peers? So what do we talk about today? We dig into the data about working from home versus in the office. We find out what are the five things that drive well-being as humans. And we find out how to structure a one-to-one. How often should they be? And what are the top five things that we should talk about with our teams every week to drive high levels of engagement? We don't touch on the Q12. That's a completely different topic. Maybe I come back and talk to Jim about Gallup's Q12 measure of employee engagement later. But certainly when we talk about engagement, it's that tool that Jim is using to measure engagement in teams. And he co-wrote a book on that 12 elements of management some years ago. And how long should a commute be if it's not going to damage engagement? We've got that as well. Absolutely fantastic conversation with Jim. I'm sure you'll love it. Hi, my name is Jim Harder. I'm, my role is Chief Workplace Scientist with Gallup, and I've been studying human behavior in organizations for 37 years now, and uh, really get a kick out of studying what happens inside organizations and also looking at an opportunity we have here at Gallup is to study what happens in the populace at large, also to do massive polls of the world and workplaces around the world and understand what's going on in people's work and lives both. And you've got, you've got a new book coming out? 
yeah, it's called Culture Shock. We worked on it over the summer, did a bunch of editing in the winter, and it's ready to roll. It's on on the new workplace, on the changes that we've all all experienced. And uh, the purpose of it really is to help leaders navigate through all this. I think there's a lot of organizations still trying to figure out what to do. And we brought science to the equation and collected a lot of data. And and we want to help leaders know how to maximize productivity in this new workplace. Right. What I would like to do, I'm, I'm really keen to just jump to the answer and say, what's the answer? But I think we should tease people for a little while first. When you were gathering the data on what was the breadth and the scope of the data that you gathered to try and come to some conclusions about this? So we've got several different sources. One, we, we've been doing continuous data collection here in the U.S., about 15,000 surveys every quarter on a number of topics related to work. And we've had to expand those topics because of all the changes that we've experienced. We're, we're conducting daily surveys in the U.S. during during COVID. And so we were really not not only about work, but also about life and how people were adjusting to all the changes that we were going through. And we also have a global, we call it the World Poll, about 120 countries globally and a couple hundred thousand respondents every year. So we update our State of the Global Workplace report every year and we'll be updating it again here in June. So we, we do have global data as well. We've asked a lot of the same questions. We can't go into quite as much depth globally because of the, the space constraints on, on our surveys, but we, we do some in-depth studies in some European countries as well. And we update the state of the workplace every year globally. So we get an estimate on how many people in the in the world are engaged in their work. And we get estimates. We trend every quarter in the U.S. And we're doing an annual study in Germany, an in-depth study in Germany as well, and some other European countries. And as we went through 19 and into 20 and into COVID and then out the other side, notwithstanding the sort of the background levels of engagement, what, what did you see at in that sort of work engagement levels? Early on in COVID, we saw engagement peak. It reached actually an all-time high of 40% in the U.S. engaged in their work. And then shortly thereafter, it, it started to, to drop a bit. Actually, organizations were very responsive early on. People said that their organization, about half of people strongly agreed their organization cares about their overall well-being. But engagement here in the U.S., engagement took a, a significant drop right around the time of the events surrounding George Floyd here mm-hmm. in the U.S. I think leaders had to take a step back and, and try to figure figure out how to respond. That kind of corrected itself. But then in the second half of 2021 is where we saw significant drops in employee engagement. We saw drops globally as well. But that kind of coincided with what the so-called great resignation or great reshuffling of workers. So what happened is, you know, people went from having, you know, early on in COVID, there, there's a lot of response from employers. They realized they had to do some furloughs and some layoffs and that affected people. And then suddenly, so it went from being not a great time to find a job to then suddenly we, we saw that the line just shift completely up to where they people suddenly in, in 21 felt it was a great time to find a job. There's a lot of job openings and people remembered what happened during COVID, other employer treated them. Resignations were really a function of both opportunity and some pent-up frustrations that some workers had. Kind of a chance to sit back and reflect on what work should be in their life. And then you had other things that kind of followed from that called this this concept that has been out there for a while now called quiet quitting that has gotten a lot of media attention. And that's something that we had already been trending at Gallup for quite some time. It's, we call it not engaged. So people show up to the minimum required, not much else. And that that tends to be most most people in most jobs. It doesn't have to be that way, but it, it tends to be that way. And it has a lot to do with management. But those are some of the th- things we saw. So you've got those three, but you've got engaged. Not engaged. Not engaged and disengaged. And actively disengaged. Yeah. So people are putting in discretionary effort. People are putting in no discretionary effort. And then people who are actively terrorists inside their own organization. Yeah, that's, a, that's one way to put it. They're emotional, but against the organization and they're bringing other people down with them. We call them loud quitters now since the quiet yeah. quitting thing started. With the middle group are quiet quitters and the, the actively disengaged are loud quitters. Those might be actually the people on TikTok that were you know, being vocal. I mean, it was surprising to me that people would go publicly and, and tell the whole world that they're going to do the minimum required, including their employer. <laughs> that's, pretty, pretty, that's pretty bold. Well, I, I once, I was, at a, I was at a talk here in the UK and a young woman who worked in an advertising agency, her employers were not in the room. And she was there talking about a charity that she'd set up. 
And she said she'd worked really hard for five years and realized that her employer just sort of didn't care and didn't notice. And so she was felt like she was getting nothing from work. So she decided that if she dropped to about 60% performance, it would free up two or three hours of her day to do something else with. And so she set up a charity for homeless people. And she was there to talk about the charity. But, you know, she was open at the beginning by saying, I wouldn't be able to do this if I didn't have a job. And I've taken a deliberate decision to withdraw labor from my employer so that I get more, I get more joy out of, you know, my eight hours of work. She was very impressive. And I thought it was, I felt really sad for her that her employer didn't seem to care or didn't notice. Yeah, I think that happened with a number of people. In fact, there's kind of anecdotes of people taking multiple jobs, you know, working on two laptops and that sort of thing. So, yeah, and that, that that's kind of what happens. You know, people do kind of become quiet quitters like that if they don't have great management and if they don't feel inspired in their work. But it's hard to imagine that that, that could ever be functional for the individual or the company because most companies have value statements. Almost every job requires some level of discretionary effort. Certainly, there are some that are, that are mainly tasks, but there aren't very many that they don't require some level of, of judgment and discretionary effort anymore. And, you know, around both, you know, random things that might pop up that coworkers might need or, or that customers might need. And so even though there are specific job descriptions, it, it's any kind of withdrawal like that is probably is not good. I don't think it's good for the individual either, because as you said, that individual you're talking about didn't feel good about their work. Sounds like didn't feel very inspired. Fortunately, did something productive with the extra time, but with a charity, I mean, that'd be the best case scenario for that. But do you, do you, is there any data anywhere? Because certainly we've had Henry Stewart on the podcast in the UK, 60 companies did a four day week trial. And I don't know how many of them going into that had highly engaged employees, but certainly Henry Stewart at Happy was one of those that decided to carry on. And they, he said productivity went up because they went to a four-day week. I mean, certainly if you are not actively engaged or disengaged, you could probably do that if you put a bit more effort in, a bit of discretionary effort, you get your work done in four days. Is that, have you got any research around four-day week and how it pertains to engagement? Yeah, we actually wrote a, a little bit about that in, in, the, in our book, Culture Shock. And because it's been a very hot topic, I've gotten as much media attention around that is maybe not quite as much as quiet quitting, but quite a bit. <laughs> so we've had a chance to kind of dig into that a little bit from our perspective. And there are a lot of tests going on. And it does depend on whether people are fully on site, you know, whether the jobs require you to be on site or whether you look at all jobs across, because there's a lot of jobs where, well, let me give you the, the answer first. Engagement is not higher with a four-day work week. Well-being is a little bit higher in some cases, people do say that are on, an on-site job, you know, where they have to be on-site. They do say they would change an employer for a four-day work week. Okay. The the what I pull out of all the data on on that and other policy-related things is that if you put policy before engagement, you're going to have problems because you could institute any policies. I mean, many times policies are put in place because there's an underlying assumption that work is bad for people. And it doesn't have to be bad for people. It can be very good, very inspiring. It can lead to incredible lives because we spend so much time doing it. But I'm not saying the four-day work week isn't the right answer for some companies or some individuals. But I think as a blanket policy, it doesn't make much sense. It's actually going to cause more stress for some people because they have to crunch all their work time into four days. Are you measuring engagement using the Q12 is that your tool for measuring engagement? Okay. Yeah, and it, it has strong links to performance. So it's in terms of survey data, it's it's as good as it gets in terms of predicting retention rates and productivity and for business units, profitability, how customers feel they're being served. So the, the foundation of that tool was was around items, elements that link to performance outcomes and that managers and employees can do something about and, and fix change. And so it's movable. So as an example, we just awarded 56 organiz- 57 organizations exceptional workplaces that we review every year. So even though the U.S. average is a little over 30%, the global average is a little over 20% engaged workers, these companies have reached 70% plus engagement. And it's a high bar because we, we make it a high bar because it means something when you get to that 70% plus level. It means you've got a consistent culture. It means you've got better performance. The, the metric matters, 
and there are a lot of soft metrics out there where, where you know, people are celebrating eighty percent engagement. It's not real. <laughs> are you refer Are you referring to this thing called ENPS that people just make up and get happy about? That doesn't then drive. Doesn't there's no correlation. There's not even a correlation with performance. Well, it's it's one that it doesn't tell you what to do either. You know, you you can get an answer and you can add a bunch of scale points together and get a, a positive result. We've, as, as researchers, we've tried to stay away from that approach. And certainly engagement links to whether people would recommend their company. There's that. But it, it also links to other things. That'd be the employment brand part. But it also links to hard, hard outcomes. We actually measure profitability in, in business units. We measure whether people stay or leave their company, whether there's a, more of a tendency to, to leave. D- during the great resignation here in the U.S., engagement mattered even more than it has in the past. Actively disengaged workers were even more likely to to look for other jobs and engaged workers were a lot less likely to look for other jobs so so there's part of me there's part of me that often wishes the disengaged people would leave quicker because sometimes I, I i've had this disagreement with with people in the past but i think some people are just miserable and they get to a point where they're just hard to turn around in the organization they're in this like either they're congenitally miserable and they're going to be miserable somewhere else or for whatever reason, there's just too much water under the bridge in this organization for them to forgive and forget and move on. And we're probably all better if they go somewhere else. There are some that are chronically disengaged, you know, and we had a chance to look at that by looking at like personality profiles. And it turns out about a third of that group of actively disengaged are kind of chronically negative and they probably just don't. I should, I should relate to Bob Sutton, who I know, he's a professor at Stanford. He wrote this book called The No Asshole Rule. And, and he kind of, it's a good, it's a good book. I'd recommend it. In one of his passages, he said that every organization should have at least one. I think he said it jokingly. Should have at least at least one asshole manager just to show other people what not to be like. <laughs> and, but but that's interesting because you're saying there that two thirds of the actively disengaged people could be turned around by management. Yes, absolutely. Got a good reason to be disengaged because they've got terrible management. Maybe a manager comes in and only critiques. And doesn't build any trust, and and thinks of it could be a former engineer. Not that all engineers are going to be, but there's some engineers that be good managers. But there, it, it could be an accountant, it could be a researcher, it, it, it could be somebody who is really good at their prior job. They get into management, and oh, they just don't know how to deal with people. That happens all the time. You know, you've been you've been there for the longest time, so somebody makes you the boss. It's yeah. it's one of the top two reasons people become managers is you're good at another job. The other is tenure. Yeah. Neither of those two things relate to whether someone's a good manager or not. So you're using the Q12 for engagement. What what tool are you using for well-being? We studied global well-being. So we used our, our world poll to really understand what our, our question was kind of an open-ended one. It was, are there some elements of well-being that we can measure that individuals can act on, can change, that are generalizable across the world, that, that just are part of being human? And we found there were five. One we've been talking about, which is your career. And I could, I could argue anybody in any life stage has a career. If you ask them what they do, that's their career. If you're retired, you should have an answer to what you do. Hopefully, it's fulfilling. But for people in, in jobs, of course, it's very salient and it takes up a lot of our time. So that's, that's one of the most foundational elements that we're talking about here is, is your, your career. And if that's not inspiring, you're not going to have a great life. The second is social can also be met in the workplace and should be. And before we came on here, we were talking about that social aspect to work and how important it is for people to realize and not assume that we're a bunch of robots that just have Zoom calls and, and just have that, that in-person time, social time. It all matters a lot and it can be an intentional part of a good workplace, but it's also, of course, a part of the rest of our lives too. And do you hang out with people that inspire you, that give you energy? Or, or not. And we can make some choices about who we spend time with. The third one is financial well-being. Certainly money plays a factor, mainly because it gives us choice. And people with the highest financial well-being have long-term financial security. They feel good about where they're headed. And then they also do things to reduce the daily stress that can come with finances. And people at various income levels can do that differently. Certainly having, having more money does give you more opportunity, but that doesn't guarantee happiness. Yeah. And that's the way I'd say it. The, the people that say money doesn't buy happiness, I'd say that's probably not not the right statement. It's it's money, if you manage it right, can give you incredible happiness if you manage it right. 
Yeah, it can it can reduce stress, but it can it's not a guarantee, is the way I'd put it. the The fourth one is is maybe the obvious one: physical well being. So how we manage our our lives so that we can do what we want to do. There's disease burden. Most people, when they reach 50 plus, start learning about some disease burden that they have to manage. And can we manage our lives so that we uh, can essentially do the kinds of things that we want to do and, and have high energy on a daily basis? And some things we can't control, some things we can and to, to, to manage our lives so that we have high energy. And then the, the, the fifth area or element we call community well-being. And that's really has to do with where you live. Do you live in a place that that you can be proud of? Do you live in a place where you can get involved and make a difference at the highest level? It's about that that lady you talked about earlier that got into a charity. Um, she probably did something that was meaningful to her. It can be very individualized, but it's it's an important component. It is about living in a safe place. I mean, if you don't have that, you got to figure that out right away if you can. It's about having the kind of you know housing that you need at a at a foundational level, but at the highest level, it is about contributing. Um, and you can do that through work. You can do that outside of work. There's, there's a lot of different opportunities. And the, the key is to individualize that one. So those are five areas that we can all do something about. That, that, and I think organizations can do a lot about those five as well. That's fab. I, so the, let's, let's dive into some of the stuff in your, your new book around remote, hybrid, back in the office. Is that, is that, the, is that the, a linear way to describe it? Yeah, if you put them into three buckets, it would be yeah, fully remote, fully on-site, and hybrid, which is a mix. And I mean, we were talking before you kept, before we started recording, and you were saying you've been doing flexi time at Gallup since the 1960s, and you know, you pre-COVID, you were doing a day a week at home. Is that is that hybrid or is that office with some flexibility? Well, before COVID, I would I would I would have called it office with some flexibility. Okay. Uh, but I was, I was, I guess I was living somewhat of a hybrid. I traveled a lot too. So I guess okay. that's pretty, it's very hybrid from that sense. If you, you travel a lot, but hybrid means you're in the office, but by the way, hybrid shouldn't be random. If you get it right, it's not. Okay. So these people that say, do whatever you want to do, we trust you. I think you should trust people, but if we, if you don't have a plan and some predictability about how you do hybrid, it's just not going to work. There's, there's high risk with hybrid if you don't have the right management and the right leadership around it. So, and I think that's what companies aren't getting right right now. They're 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 taking one extreme or the other. They're even saying, "Get your butts back in the office," or, or they're saying, "We trust you to do what you need to do." And so the the criteria aren't in place to to make it work right. I find some clients of mine were fully remote before COVID, and still are, but they are looking to create some hubs in the countries in which they operate so that people can come together for some of that social time and build some culture, even if that's Im- as employees, even if they don't actually work on the same teams with the same customers or clients. And then I find the clients who are, some clients have gone f- more or less back to the office five days a week. And they said, once they said that that's what they were going to do, actually all the noise dropped away. And then some people are a bit stuck because during COVID, they decided to hire employees who could never come back to the office. And so they sort of ended up in this, half the team could never come in more than some infrequent time frame, And now they're like, oh God, if we'd known we were going to go back to, we could have gone all back to the office again. We might not have hired these people who live in random cities or random countries. Ah, and that's, that's what's causing them real angst. Cause then it's like, you know, people have moved to the country from the city. What do we do with them? So what's the, what does the data say? What is, and I, I suppose I'm thinking about engagement and productivity and what guidance can you give people as a result of the studying you've done? What's the right answer? Well, the first thing, and I'll, I'll give you kind of how the data break out here. The first thing I'd emphasize is that culture has to be intentional. And that starts with hiring. If you want to build an in-office culture, you've got to plan that into your hiring process. And, and you can't tell people that we're going to take fully remote people on. And there might be some jobs where that works great, too. I think we've got to be always got to be open yeah. to that. If you want to build an in-office culture, people need to know that before you hire them. And there's a lot of young people that want that, by the way. They're not all saying, I want to do whatever I want to do, but it takes good leadership to, to explain to them why. When we look at the data and our criteria is, is the kinds of things you'd expect, high engagement, what, what leads to the highest levels of engagement, which by the way, after 10 years of growth has been experiencing some declines starting the second half of, of 21. We, and we kind of, we, we categorize people according to you know how many days they were showing up in the office, 
We asked them what their employer was asking them to do, whether it's a requirement, whether it was more of a more of a guideline, and then actually what they were doing. We found that highest levels of engagement, lower levels of burnout, if people are, and I have to categorize this in the right way, this is among people in remote ready jobs. If people were in jobs where they have some asynchronous collaboration, meaning that they they have independent work that they, at some point in time in their jobs, they bring together with other people. So they do a lot of independent work, bring together with other people. About two days together is where engagement peak, two to three days. And for highly collaborative work, where people do work together a lot, three days is where we saw peaks in engagement. If you look at people who are, you may not, may not like this finding, people who are in the office five days a week, that's where we saw the lowest levels of engagement. And it, the, re, the reason for that, Dom, I think, is because when we all went through this pandemic and we had this, I called the forced experiment, where remote ready jobs, there's a lot more of them than we thought there were, by the way. Pe- people had were forced into trying this out. Some people, they didn't work too well because of their, their family situation. A lot of people, it did work pretty well, and they learned this thing called autonomy, which people have always craved, autonomy. And there's this thing in behavioral economics called the endowment effect. They were given some autonomy and some choice, and they didn't have to do the dreaded commute, and they learned that it wasn't as necessary as they thought. And so you try to take away the endowment effect basically means that if you take something away from somebody that they've already got, it, it hurts a lot worse than the the joy they got in getting in the first place. And it works even for a co- such something as simple as a coffee mug. You know, it, it'll cost me more to buy back a coffee mug that I might have sold you for a small amount. Man, this the, is no, I, this is no coffee mug, by the way. <laughs> just just picking up on commute is. Do you see in your data a commute length? I remember talking to the guys in the UK at Best Companies, and they said to me that they saw in their data a real clear fall off at forty five minutes. That at that point, anyone who commutes longer than 45 minutes, at some point in the future, they'll probably change jobs just to reduce the commute. Do you, is it 45 minutes in your data or some other number? Or? Pre-COVID, it was 45 where we saw stress levels okay. go up. But since COVID, it's dropped to 30. People can't tolerate ah. a 30-minute commute. So the criteria so is different. What you should be doing, if you've got a fully in-office, if, if your plan is to be in the office, you should be reducing your hiring circle to 30 minutes or less from 45 minutes or less, which is, you know, that's okay, but it's deliberate. That's what the data says you should do. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, and by the way, the commute seems le- seems more tolerable and less bad to people if they're engaged in their work. So you're, it's kind of like, I'd make it okay. an- analogous to, um, you leave your home and go out on a fishing or hunting expedition, you're pursuing something. If you're pursuing something that gets you, gets you excited, the commute isn't bad. You know, people be, People have been working from home for you know way before the industrial revolution, so it's not it's not a foreign thing to our brain. And they would commute to go get food, right? But they're pursuing something, so it wasn't a it wasn't a dreaded thing. They they needed to do it. But so you might think of it that way that if you're if you're engaged in your work, so I've got a forty minute commute. I'd rather not do it, but I can see the payoff. So it's it's worth it to me to come into the office three days a week, or sometimes more, but three days a week and to have the 40-minute commute. But the criteria has changed for people in general, and most people aren't engaged in their work, so they're going to have higher stress with the commute. But that's the first thing that came to the... When I asked people, why do you like working from home, whether it's hybrid or fully? Commute was the number one reason. The second reason was it's better for my well-being. The third reason was it's better for my family. So people saw the time savings. They saw what was good for them. But what they didn't see right away was the the effect of the effect on with their team in person in person time you've got to experience it to remember its value i was in the office a week or two ago and we solved a problem that we didn't even know we needed to solve in 10 minutes because everybody was together and we may have not never even set up a, a meeting on zoom to to discuss it there's things like that that happen in not not to mention the fun things too, right? The the social things, but in the innovation and the mentoring for young people, you know, yeah. and and so it's really important for leadership to to list off the whys to first identify and be intentional about what you want your culture to be, and second to explain why why being in the office matters if that's what you want your culture to be, 
and, and what the payoff is for the individual. We asked another data point. We asked people how they decide where they're going to where they're going to work, whether it's in the office or at home. And is about 80, well, 87% of them said it was either leadership told me, my manager told me, or I decided on my own. 87%. What's the fourth reason? The fourth criteria. It's, it's I decided with my team, which, by the way, is the most highly related to engagement. But only 13% of people said they worked it out with their team in terms of, so people showing up to the office, nobody else is there. It's not very inspiring. I, well, I was, I was talking to a CEO who he lives remote. He lives overseas. He was saying to me today that he's in his office more than the people who live 10 minutes up the road. And his instinct is to tell people to come back to work. And I guess it's the endowment effect that I was thinking about. And I said, it's much better if you can get them to decide that the best thing for them to do is to come back to work. I mean, the, the outcome is the same. Like, what outcome do you want? Then let's work out how do we get there rather than mandating people. But he was a little bit disappointed that 12 people had come in out of 250. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think people also have to experience, you know, what in-person means and you've got to build a culture where people like being together. And But I think a lot of executives have the same, probably almost all executives have the same, not all, but a high percentage. I can relate to that, that, you know, you've got this office space, you want people to use it. We predicted quite a while back that, and it's it's holding up, that close to 40% of office space will no longer be necessary. And it, it seems to be about the way the way it's shaken out. And you look at the patterns in terms of what people are actually doing and where they're working, and it's kind of stabilized now. People are, they're working in places that are pretty predictable now. Well, this, there's sort of two to three days a week that you talked about. Is that, does it matter what three days that is? I mean, you said also it's better if the team decide rather than in some sort of mandatory way, but which which three days are best? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It is a, it is a promise. And by the way, that's the answer. The tendency tends to be that's when people when people pick. It doesn't mean those have to be the three days. But the, the most more important criteria is that you agree, you agree on what those days are. So that when you when you show up, your team are there rather than be on your own. Because if you go to if you go to the office and you spend all day on Zoom, you think to yourself, "Well, I may as well have just been at home." Right. If you yeah, and so you've got to be intentional about what you do in person, what kind of meetings you have, and and how. You interact with your colleagues, but we found, and we even recommend this in the book, just pick Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You can pick something different if you want, but would you recommend you pick Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? Because, and that's almost got to come from leadership to say, these are our in-office days. It doesn't mean you're putting out a mandate. You're just saying, this is when we're going to have in, in-person culture and we're going to have most of our you know in-person events then. We're going to expect for people to be in. It doesn't mean you can't still have flex time around that, but it does set kind of a standard for when people can show up and expect to have the right kind of interactions with their colleagues and for young people to know when they're going to have some development opportunities. By the way, development is dropping for young people. It used to be a real advantage to be young, to have chances to develop, and it's not as much anymore. So there's a lot of payoff to the individual if they can just, we just help them see it. But it is a promise to your team. And I think when people see it as a promise to their team, they're more likely to get on board with it than if it feels like a mandate. But I, I think that's on the manager I, then to, to help facilitate that. You see, to me, I, I played rugby for most of my adult life and nobody made me go to training in the rain on a Tuesday or a Thursday in the cold and the dark in February. And nobody made me turn up and play on a Saturday. And in fact, nobody cared whether we won or lost except the players on the field. And yet you do it because you're in a team. And, you know, and that's what you're saying, that whole make a commitment. Because without sort of, 20 people commit and there's no team. There's nothing more enjoyable than getting something done with other people. I mean, it's just... It's the human condition. Yeah. It's such an enjoyable thing and to accomplish things together. People need to kind of see that, feel that again. And I think it's it's on managers to, to almost force those kind of conversations among their team. And, and, you know, leadership can say, these are our, these are our days. We, we, we value in-person time and here's why. They can even make a decision to make it a part of the consideration for the people they hire in the future and all that. But it comes down to the manager knowing each person, how the team functions, what each person's job is, how much of it they need. They, they might have some people on their team like me that have high focus and they need to get absorbed. And there might be those two days when it, that just happens better. 
managers are in the only position in organization or the only ones in position in organizations to know the idiosyncrasies of each person, to know their strengths, to 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 know their life situation, their family, all that, to be able to to juggle that, to make it work, and to be able to explain it to their, you know, their colleagues so that they know why people are in at certain times and when they're not. And I think there needs to be some transparency about that. So it's again, so that it's predictable. And I, I actually think, even though I, I cited some depressing de- declines in engagement, I think that employee engagement and well-being could reach all-time highs through this. If we get managers upskilled, let's call it, or reskilled to have the right conversations with people and be in touch with them on a regular basis. So I think hybrid work, even though it has higher risk, it also has higher reward if we get it right. And I, was, I want to go back to that risk of reward hybrid for a second, but the 57 companies that scored a seven, had more than 70% engaged employees, you said there's a link between engagement and performance. Is there, is there something about those? Is there, a, is there any performance data about those companies? They have their own, yeah. They each have their own performance data. In fact, one of our criteria that we looked at, we look at not only how they do, they get really high response rates on their search, like 85%. No, I mean, I mean are they relative to their com- competitors? Is their financial performance or maybe team productivity higher? Yeah, for publicly traded ones, we've, we've been tracking them over the years. We've been giving out this award for quite some time and compare them to their peers. And they've done substantially better on earnings per share relative to their peers over time. So they do really well from a performance standpoint. And if you looked up the, we published the names of them. And if you looked up the publicly traded ones, you'd see that they're, they're doing well on average. Engagement doesn't perfectly explain performance, but it, it gives people a better chance. And it, in fact, we did this big study during past recessions. And we found that engagement was an even stronger predictor of performance during tough times during recessions. Right. So when you need to hold and, your own. And going back to hybrid then, you said there's potential upside and there's potential downside. And what do you see in the data as the potential downsides of of hybrid? And you, I mean, you talked about young people having less access to development. And you said that one of the reasons you go into the office actually is to mentor your colleagues. What what else do you see in the in the data? Well, a risk is potential burnout, unclear expectations because people are coming and going, but but burnout is another risk in hybrid. You can actually, hybrid employees do have a risk of some elements of engagement being lower just because, unless you make it predictable, right? Like I was saying, so if you just leave it hybrid and just, just, just call it hybrid work and don't have any formula or schedule around it, like we we're talking about before, then you run the risk of people not feeling connected and and not not being in the office at the same times having less clear expectations because they're not they're not bumping into people in the halls and so there's that i i i i think and this i might have remembered the stat wrongly but in my head i have that sort of first question in the gallup q12 i know what we expected at work and that you've published data in the past where from the companies that don't have that in place i guess that the C and D performers thought they were above average in terms of performance because that sort of explicit expectation metrics aren't there. And I was amazed that the number of companies that have that in place is only 35%, or maybe I misremembered your data. Knowing what's expected, it's about half of people strongly agree to that. In other words, about half of people globally have that. Are, are unclear, Yeah, which is, which is amazing, amazingly bad, but that people come to work not being real clear on what their job is. You can see why some of them would be in that quietly quitting category or or even actively disengaged. It, it frustrates the heck out of people to want to do well and, and, and be confused about it. We've done some of that sort of scorecarding work with some of our clients. And, you know, I remember sitting down with one guy and, and he said, so is this about what I spend most of my time doing? And I said, no, not really. How do you measure your impact? He said, because I spent 60% of my time doing email and I I was thinking that was probably my high impact activity. And it's just, and, and, then, and then I said, is there anything you do that nobody does? And he said, oh yeah, I have to sign off the projects from India every morning by 11 o'clock because if I don't, the Indians have got nothing to do tomorrow and we lose a day on the project. And I said, do you do that every day? He said, no, sometimes I forget and just do email. And it's just, just, just sitting there going, oh my God. It's like you get sucked in, yeah. It's just so easy. You could just be busy. Yeah. Yeah, you, get, you become a victim of what's in front of you instead of being intentional. And that can happen with cultures too. You know, cultures can be, become victim to the circumstances instead of being intentional about it and, and 
like all the things we're just talking about, planning and making it predictable. And But first identifying, and that's one of the actions really, is leaders identifying what culture they want and being very intentional about how they get there. We call it a culture audit. You can Every organization can do that. We do this for organizations quite often now. And it, it helps leadership know, you know, get a grasp on here's what we want to be. And here's what's getting in the way of that. If you don't do that, I think you, you could easily fall victim to the circumstances and never get the kind of culture you want. And you, you mentioned one very intentional one, which is how you hire people. You know, if, you, if it's an after the fact thing, you, you might be going in the wrong direction. But so who you pick, that includes your managers. You got to be intentional about that. Another thing, I want to make sure I get this in here because it's probably the most important takeaway from everything we had a chance to look at. And it, it makes it feel very accomplished like you can like you can get it done that's that it's an accomplishable thing and every manager needs to have at least one meaningful conversation with each person every week if they do that once a week and if you can't do that you probably have you might have too many people on your that you're managing but it doesn't have to be long if you do it every week it could be 15 to 30 minutes and what happens well we had a chance to study what happens in a so-called meaningful conversation so we asked people about their last manager conversation and whether it was meaningful on a one to five scale. The people that said it was extremely meaningful listed off some common characteristics of the meeting. One was they were recognized. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm just laughing because I, I, in the Q12 is there, were you, did you receive praise for a job well done in the last seven days? And I remember, I remember picking up with a client and they said, oh, we do the Gallup Q12. And I said, oh, let me have a look. And they changed it to every six months because when they'd done seven days, they scored so badly, they just changed the question. And it's just like things like that just blow my mind. Anyway, I interrupted you. So what else was there? there they, is- they completely altered the question and the, res- and the and the impact of, you're recognizing someone every six months, you're not getting your... <laughs> it's not a praise culture. You got to think about what happens when we're recognized. If there's a dopamine burst in our brains that, you know... If you do that every six months, you're you just you're not you're not meeting management with human nature. I guess is what I would yeah. say. But if you think about it, to get recognition right, it seems like a simple thing. To get it right, though, you got to know what the individual is doing. You got to be in touch with them, the work that they're doing. You got to know something about the quality of the work they're doing. Either you hear it from a coworker, or you hear it from from them, but you or or maybe another leader. But you've got to be in touch with them to give them the right kind of recognition to make it authentic. The second thing is that we talked about earlier is they discussed in a meaningful conversation how they collaborate with their team. Their manager talks with them about how they collaborate and what works best. And the managers, of course, in, if they're doing their job right, they're in touch with their coworkers and they, they know what those coworkers' needs are. And they can, they can help kind of bridge that gap a bit in terms of, you know, if we just think about what's good for us, we may, may not be paying much attention to a coworker who has is extroverted and needs in-person time, and we need to be there for them because it makes them function better. So it isn't all about us. It's, it's about how myself and my team collaborate effectively together, and we need to know each other's strengths to, to do that. Goals and priorities, of course, was another area. If you, if you discuss goals and priorities every week and, and you build on the previous conversation, you can do it pretty quickly. If you don't do it every week, you've got to backtrack. You might miss mm-hmm. an adjustment that needed to be made, or, or you might just have to spend more time. Than, and not saying, you know, some, sometimes people have longer conversations in 15 to 30 minutes, but that's my point is it can be that short if you, if you do it with a cadence. The, the other thing that we found, and I kind of alluded to this, is that they, they talked about the individual strengths. They knew their strengths and, and put their work in the context of their strengths. What I mean by strengths are your, your innate tendencies that get you to excellence really in a role. And and you you have you have a tool for that. <laughs> we do measurement. It's it's called Clifton Strengths. We just passed 30 million people that have been through it a couple of days ago. So it's it's a tool and that a lot of people use. What are your top five? One of them's focus. What are your other top what are your other four top? Achiever. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Learner. Uh-huh. Relator and futuristic. Okay. So we've got learner and achiever in common. Okay. okay. There we go. Yeah, I guess we're, we're, we 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 agreed on getting things done with other people, so that that fits, and and <laughs> we're learning some things together here on the call. So, I think. And what was the what's the, what's the last one? Well, I, I mentioned the amount of time that actually factored into the equation. Uh, okay. Right. Okay. 
the, the amount of time. If you want to add one more, you could add the next one on the list would have been your well-being or your, your work-life situation. So how your work and your life are blending or not and, and what the manager can do to, to accommodate for that. But but you kind of get what why that's important because you've got to be, if we're in a hybrid world now, and, and by the way, of remote ready people, 90% want some form of hybrid or fully remote option. Most want hybrid. And so most people now in remote ready jobs are hybrid. And even people in on-site jobs want, like, want some autonomy too. So we've got to think about them. But but yeah, the, the point is we managers need to be in touch with people if, if we're going to be in this this hybrid world. And uh, they've got to have one meaningful conversation a week to make that happen. And if they do that, 80% of those people are engaged. Think about, you know, the, the answer is never as simple as one thing. <laughs> but in this case, it kind of kind of is if you... Now, there's a lot of things underneath meaningful, right? So it's not just one thing, but it, but it is kind of one activity that you've got to make a, a coaching habit that, that happens. That's fab. I mean, that, that details magic because I guess your former colleague, Marcus Buckingham, when he wrote his book, Nine Lies About Work, one of the things, he's, it's the same thing, he found weekly was the magic cadence as opposed to fortnightly, as opposed to, or as opposed to the thing that I hate the most, which is this quarterly appraisal cadence, which actually was too, too, too far apart to be in a position where anyone, people actually thought you didn't care because you did it that infrequently. The thing that was wrong about that was that we, try, we tried to use it to, to replace the weekly conversation and you still need slowdown conversations, I would argue, like semi-annual at least, times when you sit down and spend some significant time with somebody to slow down, think about their role, their job, their... Well, it's part of that career. You've got to do some career planning at some point, which is not, is not a tactical cadence, absolutely. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's a different purpose than the ongoing. And you can still do some of that during the ongoing meaningful conversations, but you do need some time to kind of slow down and think about the past and the future, future in particular, and to, to think about the individual's strengths and how those can be leveraged into career development into the future. The annual review, the semi-annual review, the quarterly review all got a bad rap because they just weren't used in the right way or the, the assumption was that they would do all the other things. Yeah. Jim, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? What do I know now that I wish I'd known earlier? I think all the, <laughs> seems like all the things we've been talking about, I, I learned just by studying people and data during the pandemic. I think that that finding about you've got to figure it out with your team as opposed to a mandate, it's a responsibility to the team. I thought that was, a, that was kind of an aha. I don't know if I would have, I don't know if I would have thought that that was necessarily the answer. I think a lot of us thought that the blend of in-person and remote was the right answer, but the exact amount and how you go about doing it and all that, I think was was a good learning. I'm amazed by the data that a four-day week doesn't change engagement, but then you explain that the policy and the culture are two different things. So, and it's with any policy. You could you could put a policy around around hours worked, and that's going to cause stress for some people. So the the policies don't work the same way for everybody. And you, we got to think about the assumptions that go into what we're trying to do. And if the assumption about a policy is that work has to be a bad thing, then that's problematic because it doesn't. Yeah. And as well as your new book, Culture Shock, fantastic. What other books do you think people should pick up on this topic or frankly, any topic that you think would be interesting? Well, I'm going to, I'll give you two answers. One, I want people to be aware of some work that we did before this one. I've, I've had a, the pleasure of working on these last three books with our chairman, Jim Clifton, and the first one we worked on together was called It's a Manager. It's done well, but mainly because we wrote it not in the traditional book sense, more like a manual for managers. It's got 52 short chapters in it, and it's really about the, the best evidence we have about how you manage effectively. And the findings in there, I think, have been useful to people um, during these tough times we've had the last three years. And, and it, it does speak to that meaningful conversation, kind of breaks it down into five different types of conversations that people can have. And it goes through a bunch of different topics, 52 again, and we try to condense it. One of the things I get a kick out of is trying to take complex research and make it as usable as possible for people while still being accurate. The second one we call, we titled Wellbeing at Work, and that was in, in, in reference to some of the mental health crises that society's going through right now. The workers are at all-time highs in terms of stress 
And so there's a lot we need to do about that. It, it include, It's about those five elements we talked about earlier and then what workplaces can do to solve for that. The other an- part of my answer is when we were writing this latest book, Culture Shock, I had a chance to go back and review. I like to go back in history and not just assume that we're all you know, learning new things. Sometimes we're just reinventing the wheel. There's a lot of work that preceded us that was really good, fantastic work. So I had a chance to review the work of Peter Drucker and Abram Maslow. And those two were just geniuses of their time in understanding what makes people function appropriately and the value that work can bring to somebody's life. They approached it two different ways, Drucker from kind of a top-down way. So he's, he's got, they both have management books. Maslow on management is a, is a really good one if you just want to get into, but to, and he's known for the hierarchy of needs, but that that doesn't do justice to everything that he taught and shared with folks about his own studies. In fact, Abram Maslow made a really significant point that I picked up on in his reading that we've also seen in our data that work can be a way to build citizens, to build you know good citizens and and people who give back to the community. And it's maybe maybe more useful than even a therapist if we get it right. Yeah. So I thought that was that was really good insight. But he's got that. And then Drucker's got a everybody knows about all the Drucker's work, but his family put together a summary of of some of his work that I had a chance to read through and, and, and Peter Drucker kind of took a top-down approach. He studied fun- high-functioning organizations, then eventually came to the realization that it really is about individuals using their strengths. They're both strength scientists that proceeded. They're kind of around about the same time that Don Clifton, one of my mentors of 17 years, was was studying all the, the traits that led to the Clifton Strengths Instrument that we talked about earlier. So there are th- three strengths pioneers that I had a chance to go back and study some of their previous work, and I'd recommend others do the same. They're kind of legends. Well, they are legends in, in the world of management. And I think it's important to, to refresh our memories about everything that the people did before us. Very good. That's fab. Thank you very much. Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure. I could pick your brains all day. So thank you for giving us the time. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.